Well, good morning. I just have a sense in my heart today that God has something special in store for us, and um, He already has worked in our first service, and believe that He's going to work here in this service as well. Last week, we launched into a um, new section in our study on the Gospel of Matthew called The Portraits of Jesus. And uh, this section comes after we've heard Jesus' words in Matthew 5 to 7, and also after we've seen his deeds in Matthew 8 to 10. If you remember, last time we talked about the fact that during this particular section of Scripture, the problem is that Jesus is painting a portrait, a picture of who he is for the people of Israel, and they're not liking it. Uh, They are not pleased of how Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah, and he is not meeting their expectations. Now, in our text today, um, Jesus addresses two groups of people. The first group are the heavy-hearted, and the second group is the hard-hearted. We'll deal with them in reverse order. The hard-hearted first, and then secondly, the heavy-hearted. And he has radically different messages for both groups. It's stunning how different his words are for hard-hearted versus heavy-hearted people. His aim in this section is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Now those of you who've been around church for a while may recognize that little statement because it's kind of an old school way to describe the goal of preaching. The goal of preaching is in effect to afflict the comfortable. So if you've come today comfortable, my aim, and I believe biblically my aim, is to afflict you in love and have you love it. If you are afflicted, I don't want you to be afflicted. I want you to be comforted in all of the beautiful comforts that can come to you in the person and work of Christ. And what Jesus does here is he recognizes that the spiritually comfortable need to be woken up. They need to be shocked. And the spiritually afflicted need hope. They need encouragement. They need comfort. And he has a very different message for both groups. Now, at the end of the day and at the end of this message, you're going to have to ask yourself a question. And the question is this. When Jesus looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see someone who's hard-hearted? Someone who treats Jesus with a nonchalant attitude? Or does he see someone who is afflicted, afflicted by their own spiritual poverty, afflicted in their soul with who they are in light of who Jesus is? Jesus afflicts the comfortable and comforts the affliction for the Father's glory and for the good of those who would hear. But it all depends on your response to Jesus. It all depends on your response to the portrait that is painted for us in this text. So, first, to the hard-hearted. Jesus' aim here is to afflict the comfortable. In this first section, in verses 20 to 24, we see a hard-hitting warning. And the warning is given to those who are comfortable spiritually. They they, they know, they're familiar with spiritual things, they know a lot of religious lingo, and they have an appearance of righteousness. But what they don't have is substantial spiritual action. They're loaded with knowledge, they're loaded with spiritual things, but what they are bankrupt in is in taking specific action steps based upon what they know. In point of fact, they know far more than what they've done. Throughout the Bible, Scripture constantly reminds us of these kind of people. They have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, 2 Timothy 3.5. 
They are always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, 7. They've tasted and seen, they've shared, they've, they've partaken of the goodness of God. Hebrews 6, 4-5. But it produces no action, no change, no belief on their part. They are comfortable with spiritual things, damningly so. They make the tragic mistake of thinking that because they've been raised in a Christian home, they're around Christian things, they went to a Sunday school all their life, and they know Bible stories, and they know biblical definitions, and man, they can counsel, they can even lead people to Christ. But the reality is their heart has grown hard, and the fact of the matter remains, they are resisting the beautiful reality of who Jesus is. And he says to them, they need to be afflicted. Which should make those of us who grew up in Christian homes who've been in church all of our lives, shudder. Jesus speaks a strong word to those who are in this condition. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. And he tells us the reason, because they did not repent. So what happened here is they became way too familiar with Jesus, way too... Um, understanding in terms of intellectually of what was going on in his ministry, but they failed to respond to him. So their failure was not in knowledge. Their failure was not in information. Their failure was in repentance. You know what that word repentance means, right? You've run across it many times, perhaps, in your study of the Bible, or maybe you've heard it before. But the word repentance means a change of mind. It involves a new understanding, feeling a new thing, and then developing a new action. It's defined this way. It means a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, and to walk in obedience to Christ. It it means that you understand what the Bible says, you feel the weight of it, and then you do something with it. Don't confuse repentance with right thinking. Don't confuse right Don't confuse repentance with feeling something. There's far too many people who understand what's said and they feel bad about it, but they do nothing and they're not repentant no matter how bad they feel. Sorrow and grief doesn't equal repentance. Repentance is a the, the, the convergence of right thinking, right feeling that then leads to right action. And Jesus is chiding these three cities because of their failure to repent. The main characteristic of these cities was they were around Jesus, they had info about Jesus, but they had grown too comfortable with Him, and therefore they did nothing with Him. To the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, their problem was that of familiarity. Jesus says this to them, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The cities of um, Chorazin and Bethsaida were in close proximity to Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, if you remember, was sort of the epicenter or the launching point of Jesus' ministry, and many healings were done in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And Jesus says to them, these two cities, that if the works had been done in Tyre and Sidon that had been done in you, they would have repented long ago. Now what's the deal with Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon were cities along the coast. They were Phoenician cities, and they were known for their rampant materialism, their idol worship, and their superior knowledge. All the best schools, the best law school in the known area of uh, Israel was in the city of Sidon in Phoenicia. The, the most wealthy region of, the, of that world was Tyre because of its trade in purple dye made from clams that had been 
harvested out of the Mediterranean Sea. So when he mentions Tyre and Sidon, these two cities were often cities that were the focal point of judgment because of their, their trade, their wealth, their culture, and their arrogance. And, and Jesus says to them, if the works that I've done in your city had been done in those cities, those pagan Phoenician cities would have repented long ago. He says that Chorazin and Bethsaida are far too familiar with his works, but they did nothing about it. Therefore, their judgment would be severe. Verse 22, But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Their problem, listen carefully, was that Jesus' miracles in their area became too familiar, too common, too passe. And it was their lack of repentance that gave evidence that they were way too casual with Jesus. Here's what happens. You hang around spiritual things. You see the work of God happening around you. You sense the movement of God's Spirit in your midst. And you just leave as if that's just normal. And nothing ever changes. And Jesus says, don't you know how dangerous that is for your soul? Chorazin and Bethsaida, the problem was they were way too familiar with Jesus. But they didn't do anything with it. To Capernaum, the problem was one of favor. The the, the rebuke here is different. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Notice that. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, Now this phrase, will you be exalted to heaven and then brought down to Hades, is a familiar statement of judgment in the Bible for those nations or people whose pride has gotten the best of them. So the question is, what is filling the heart of Capernaum with pride? What are they being lifted up to heaven about in their own mind? Well, it's likely that because Jesus' miracles and because the base of his operation was Capernaum and people were being healed, that word began to spread of this miracle worker named Jesus and people began flocking to the city of Capernaum. In fact, earlier on in Matthew, we saw that his ministry was wildly popular as people came and saw and many were healed. In fact, Matthew 9, 8 tells us that the crowd responded with amazement that God had given such authority to men. So Capernaum may have thought that they were special, a place where people began to encounter God. And therefore, Jesus' rebuke is devastating. Look what he says to them. They they, they think they've got it together. They think that, that God's favor is on them. He tells them, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's a shocking statement. After all, Sodom was the ultimate sin city, and it was the most notorious example of what happens when people go their own way, and then God responds and judges them. But Capernaum... Jesus says, is worse off than Sodom. They foolishly assumed that if they were near the blessings of God, if they were around the activity of God, or if they felt as though they were blessed, if they experienced what they thought was the favor of God, then they were therefore spiritual. And what Jesus tells them is their lack of repentance coming out of their passivity and comfortableness makes their judgment more disastrous than that of Sodom. That ought to make you tremble. 
Because there is this clear sense within this text that the hard-hearted don't know that they're hard, they think they're spiritual, and the problem is, is they just simply are doing nothing. They're just living their life with Jesus as an appendix to their existence. So here's my question. Are you spiritually comfortable? Jesus rebukes these cities for their hard-heartedness, and he's got some pretty strong words for them, and we need to be reminded about the same thing because we live in a land with a treasure trove of spiritual information. We live in a country with freedom to be able to research and think and worship and sing and listen. We we live in an environment from a technological standpoint that some of the best spiritual material in all of the planet is available to us with a click of a button. And it can be easy to assume that just because we have in God we trust written on our currency that somehow we are a blessed people by God. As if a Christian nation, so to speak, with a Judeo-Christian ethic pervades our land and therefore our righteousness is better than others around the world. And I would suggest to you that whatever you think of in God we trust or the notion of being a Christian nation, I would suggest to you that perhaps, perhaps the cultural Christianity of our land does not help our soul, it actually hinders it. Because we are too comfortable with Jesus. While being raised in a Christian home and going to a Christian school or or having a Sunday school or youth ministry and information poured and hearing hundreds of sermons is a beautiful blessing from God, do not assume for a moment that because you are near the content of the Scriptures or because you know the name Jesus or you know stories about Him that you are serving Him and following Him in repentance. Do not assume that you can simply listen to a message and leave and get away with that for very long. Jesus says to these cities, when Jesus was in the middle and you failed to do the one thing that he required, which was repent, your judgment will be severe, more severe than even the worst of the worst of the worst cities that God has ever poured his judgment out upon. So this is, this is a trembling concept, this hard heartedness. Let me ask you a few questions. First, do you rely on and talk about your spiritual life as something in the past? I run into folks like this often, that that their, their spiritual development is 30 years old, it's 20 years old, so they can tell you about the heyday of their spiritual life, but their spiritual growth is Never in the present tense. They're never presently repenting. They're always talking about what happened to their life in the past. They got set free once, and then that was it. They're grateful it got freedom from the addiction, and now they found little new ones and think that they're free. Secondly, do you justify your disobedience by comparing yourself to others? You look around, you can, you can find cities like Sodom far worse than you. What you don't realize, though, is that God looks at you through a different lens. Third, do you find it easy to listen to a sermon without taking any action? Do you, do you have this mentality, you know, I can sit there and listen and not feel anything. You ought to tremble at that. Fourth, do you justify not changing now, believing you have good excuses? All sorts of reasons why immediate repentance doesn't apply to you. 
Number five, do you privately think that the blessings of God are somehow connected to your actions or what you deserve, or they're somehow an affirmation of your obedience? You've been blessed financially. You've got a great career. You've got the home that you've dreamed of. Your kids, you just like, like you always wanted. And somehow in the back of your mind, if you're honest, you think, this is like God's seal of approval that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing when the real issue inside of your heart, you know, is the more God has given you, the smaller your heart has become. Do you focus more, number six, about... What do you focus and talk more about what you know as opposed to what you've applied? Number seven, are you moved emotionally over your own sin? Or can you just hear the word and sing and be a part of church and just doesn't move you? Number eight, would you miss the fellowship of God's people on Sunday? If you were gone for three, four, five weeks, would there be a part of your soul that would begin to shrink? Or would you feel liberated from all of the trappings of religion? Here's another one. Would anyone notice if you were gone? Some folks might say, praise the Lord, you're gone. (laughs) But the question is, would they notice in a positive way or a negative way rather that you were gone? Or have you just made... Being a part of a church family, something casual and comfortable. You slip in, you slip out, you choose what service you want to come to based upon the content of what's being talked about. And you simply come and go and no one really knows. And why? Because you like church that's comfortable. And finally, does this part of the sermon make you angry? (laughs) Am I making you angry? Jesus wants to afflict the comfortable and thank Him that He does. Because He does it for our own good. You see, familiarity and and favor can be dangerous to our souls. Just because we know a truth doesn't mean we've applied the truth. And just because God extends favor to us doesn't mean that He's satisfied with our lives. It is eternally dangerous to presume upon the kindness of God. Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing, not knowing that the kind, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the scary thing about this text. It says that God gives you good things to woo you to repentance, but every time you see that gift that He gives you and it doesn't lead you to repentance, you actually make a deposit in the judgment account. So God keeps pouring out blessings, and the more that you then receive those blessings but don't turn your heart towards Him, the greater the dam of God's judgment becomes. The greater pool of, of, of wrath, Paul says, that will be poured out because you've seen the goodness of God, but it's only been something that you felt like affirmed or given you a stamp of approval, not something that was meant to humble you and to bring you to repentance. It's interesting to me this week that our Secretary of State Hillary Clinton called the disaster in Haiti a biblical disaster. Did you hear that? I don't presume to know why she said that. I just found it to be fascinating that somebody would... I also found it fascinating and deeply disturbing that Pat Robertson would suggest that he could speak for God in terms of this being the judgment on the Haitian people because they made a pact for the devil devil years ago. I wish somebody would just tell him, Brother, a man is counted wise when he says few words. (laughs) 
So, biblical disaster. Part of me wonders if the reason why we put those words together like that is because there's this understanding that the Bible says that one day there's going to come a judgment that's apocalyptic, that's global in scale. Maybe it was the size of the disaster that caused the unification of biblical and disaster. Or maybe, and I hope it was this, oh how I hope it was this, that it is that in those moments when massive destruction takes place, it is a reminder that the goodness of God holds all things together and all He has to do in one blink of an eye, say plates move and hundreds of thousands of buildings collapse. Maybe it's a reminder that there is a finite man and an infinite God. And our buildings, however structurally sound they are, teeter on the brink of disaster based upon the dynamics of the universe that God holds together. Maybe it's a reminder that He is God and we are His creatures. Oh, I hope that's what was meant. Because the kindness and the goodness of God was meant to lead us to repentance. So all those things in your life that you see as blessings, those are meant to remind you that you're not in control of your life. The the problem is, is that too often we make them about us. And then we neglect who Jesus really is. So that's the word to the heavy hearted. They need to be afflicted. Now the word to the, or the, the hard hearted rather, here's the word to the heavy hearted. If the hard-hearted's one response was repentance, the heavy-hearted are now called to be comforted. Jesus aims to, to comfort the afflicted, and he gives here what is one of the most frequently quoted verses in all of the Bible about rest and finding rest in Jesus. But the real point of this little section here is not about rest, per se. Rather, it's about the humility and the faith in Jesus that are critical to entering the rest of the kingdom. And the affliction that is here, the heavy-heartedness, is not because of circumstances on the outside. Rather, the affliction that is here is an affliction of the soul. In the end, verse 28, Jesus will promise, Come to me and I will give you rest. But before he makes that promise, he undergirds that promise with some a basis of his comfort which rests in his own sovereignty and his supremacy. Notice what he says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. It's interesting to note here that Jesus moves from a moment of rejection where he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, and then he turns to praise the Father, saying something like, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Jesus is giving a summary here of who is receptive to the kingdom, and he's drawing a sharp distinction between proud people and humble people. And he's saying this, that it is the simple, the humble, the childlike to whom Jesus reveals the kingdom. But the proud, the intelligent, it is to those folks that the Father has hindered them from understanding, hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and instead revealed them to children. So his point here is that there is a sovereign plan at work, that God is the one who's orchestrating all of these things. And and you might ask, well, why does God do it like that? Well, verse 26 gives us the answer. 
Verse 26 says this, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, there were some people that God was hiding the reality of the kingdom because of how hard their hearts were. And there were others who God was opening their eyes, the the humble, the gentle, the contrite, the, the childlike, and He was opening their eyes to see what the kingdom was. And Jesus says, Why does God do it this way? His answer is, For such is your gracious will. And this is really important. Because what this means is that underneath the sovereignty of God, underneath the purposes, the plans of God, underneath the Father's concealing and revealing activity is simply the Father's own desire. There's not logic. There's Father's desire. It's His gracious will. In other words, His gracious will, God's gracious will, is the only motivator for why He acts the way He does. Not fairness, not who will respond, simply His gracious plan, His gracious will. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 9. It's, it's meant to cause us to say there are things about God we can't fully understand. And I don't know why, but what I do know is this was your gracious will. And for us to simply say, because it was your plan, then it is enough for me. Again, back to the who, not the why. Romans 9 says this, Why have you made me like this? Will you answer back to God? Will the thing that's molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Paul is saying God is sovereign. He doesn't owe you an explanation. That's what Jesus is saying here. Or Job 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he says, Where were you when I... So the answer to Job is not explaining what was going on. The answer to Job was, look at me, Job, and rest in my gracious plan. Again, the sovereignty of God is meant at the end of the day not to be explainable, but instead meant to humble us underneath the powerful reality that life far exceeds our ability to fully comprehend and know. And this is why Jesus says, I thank you that your gracious kingdom And your gracious kingdom plan was to reveal your heart to the humble. In verse 27, he then says four things. First, all things have been handed over to me, like the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Secondly, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. Exclusive relationship. And then he says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And then he says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So right in the center of this this beautiful reality of what's going on here is the Son who understands the Father and a decisive choice to reveal Him to those to whom He chooses. That He opens the eyes, He he works with the humble, he, He motivates and moves the heart. Why does He talk like this? Here's why. Because He is elevating Christology to a new level. He is showing us the beautiful reality of a supreme and sovereign Savior. We see a Jesus who is ultimately known by the Father, who's intimately known by the Father, and a Son, Jesus, whose mission on the earth is to make Him known. And what that means is the only way for a person to know the Father is to know Jesus. He's in complete control, and it's in Him and through Him and by Him that all access to the Father happens. Why is all of this important? Here's why. Because at the end of the day, the basis of all comfort is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it is that he is the only one that knows the Father. And he's the only one whom the Father really knows in an intimate way, in a special way. And it is the Son's joy to reveal the Father to little children who are simple and not discerning, who are humble. And all of that equation makes its exclamation mark in the supremacy of who Jesus is. It means that we then say, I don't fully understand all of this, and some of it doesn't even make sense to me, but I believe in you, Jesus. You are the Messiah, and belief in the person of Jesus becomes then the basis of all comfort. Try and make this crystal clear. The promise that he gives is conditioned on his supremacy and his superiority. In other words, the reason that people in Chorazin and Bethsaida, the reason that 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 the... The people of Capernaum dealt with him with a trifle manner was because they didn't realize who they were dealing with. They had domesticated Jesus. And he says to them, as through this prayer, I am the only one who knows the Father. He's exalting and showing himself to be supreme and sovereign. And the reason he does is he wants them to know who they would be missing if they had chosen to walk away from him. And then his offer of rest is personal. Notice what he says in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Notice how personal these invitations are. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. What's he doing here? He's offering them rest, spiritual rest. But he's offering it how? He's offering it in himself. So he's not offering them a program, a methodology, a structure, a system. He's saying, come to me. And when he says, come to me, he's saying, come to me, who is sovereign and supreme. He's exalting himself so that there is great resource of rest for those who would come. You ever had it where you come back from a vacation and you feel like you need vacation from a vacation? You get done from a weekend and you're just longing for a restful weekend and by the time you get to Sunday you're exhausted because Saturday was just so full. You ever wondered, how do I get real rest? You think, I just got to get eight hours of sleep and that doesn't work. Jesus is talking about the kind of rest that you can't buy. The kind of rest that doesn't come with money. The kind of rest that doesn't come with counseling. The kind of rest that doesn't come from medicine or from a friend. He's talking about eternal soul rest that only a sovereign and supreme Savior can really give. He's talking about a word that he gives just at the right moment. So yesterday I'm running on the treadmill and and I'm listening to a message and my heart is just filled with numerous battles and things that are happening inside of my soul. I'm just praying for the Lord's help, the Lord's help, the Lord's help. And in the middle of that run, through the midst of a sermon, there's one little phrase of scripture that comes. And it's like an arrow to my soul as it lands on my heart and instant spiritual rest comes because of a little, little phrase in the scriptures and Jesus brought rest to my soul like a run, like my wife, like sleep, like food, like nothing could bring. It was spiritual rest of an anguished heart by simply the word of God. And that's what the sovereign, beautifully supreme Savior can do. So the invitation is completely wrapped up in who you think he is. Does he exist just to get you into heaven? Does he exist just to save you from your sins? Does he exist just to keep you out of hell? Or is he the supreme son of God who in your midst has set you free and therefore it is your joy to follow him the rest of your life? 
So Jesus says, come. Come, all who labor. Come, who are heavy laden. Come, I am gentle. Come, I am lowly in heart. Notice he says, come. So you have to do something. You have to come. It's not just that you completely rest completely on the sovereignty of God. Well, if he does it, I'll just do it. It means that you come, but as you come, you know you'd never come unless he opened your heart and bid you come. So all the time you come, you are coming singing, knowing it's about him, not about me. So why is he wooing them? He's wooing them from their afflicted lives, from the heavy-handed, rule-oriented, self-imposed, man-made righteousness that makes people helpless and hopeless. And then he says this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. A very interesting statement. A yoke. Why a yoke? Why not say, take my chair and sit here? Take my robe and wear this. Take my bed. He says, yoke. Why? Here's why. Because true rest, don't miss this, is found in the yoke. It's not found in resting. There's rest in the yoke, which means you come to Him and you follow Him. He's talking about the kind of soul rest that comes from knowing that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that He reveals the heart of the Father, and recognizing that it's only through Him that real freedom actually comes, that Jesus makes you free, and so you run to Him because of how liberating and controlling He is over your life. But there are some folks who just want to be free from all control. And so they run to worse controls. Reminds me of a young man when I was recruiting at a Christian college before I entered the ministry. He said, I can't go to your school. There's too many rules. And I just need to be free of rules. And I said, okay, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to join the military. (laughs) I said, good luck with that, young man. Couldn't see the forest for the trees. See, the fact of the matter is that freedom comes not by being free from a yoke. No, freedom comes from being in the right yoke. Freedom comes to those who've learned the supreme and eternal value of following Jesus. It means that those who have been afflicted by their sins come to Him and they find forgiveness, they find freedom, they find a future, and then they keep coming to Him over and over and over so they can learn what it means to be like Him and to know Him. They've learned that nobody brings soul rest like Jesus. Oh, the huge contrast between the hard-hearted and the heavy-hearted. The hard-hearted treat Jesus with contempt because He's so familiar and they're so proud and they know all about Him, but they know nothing about Him. And it is the heavy-hearted who, in their anguish, have come to the end of themselves and they realize that there's no other way. There's no other way. The hard-hearted try and use other means to find their rest, but at the end of the day, they'll find nothing but judgment. And it is the heavy-hearted, those who say, I have nothing but you, who Jesus meets and says, now you find real freedom. Jesus aims to afflict the comfortable And to comfort the afflicted. And it all depends on how we have responded to him. It all depends if you really know what he's like. And if you do, then you keep coming. And you say, I can't sit in this this doldrum, dry, spiritually apathetic position anymore because of who you are. I can't stay here. So change my heart. And you plead and you beg and you get on your knees and you say, warm my heart. Change me. Make me different. Or if you're afflicted 
and yet at the end of the, your rope, you say, Lord Jesus, would you help me to hang on to you? Don't let me give up on you. I'm holding on to you because there's no rest like you bring. And I come by faith to you today and say, help me to hold on and that your yoke is easy. I will believe it. And it all depends on how you respond to Jesus. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Oh, Lord, have mercy on our souls. Lord, I pray that you would pull from our congregation today men and women who's, who know that their heart has begun to grow hard And it's not that they are in abject, defiant rebellion. It's just that you're so familiar, they treat you like you're just simply an appendix. And Lord, I pray for folks who right now feel the weight of conviction, a gift that you've given again. And I pray that their response today would not be to walk away and just say, that's it. Oh, Lord, we pray that you'd have mercy. Oh, Lord, you'd have mercy. In a moment, Eric's going to come and um, lead us together as we sing, Lord, have mercy. We're going to sing this together. And if just the cry of your heart and the desire within your soul is to say, Lord, I want you to have mercy on me, whether it's hardness or affliction, I'm just going to ask you where you are. Everyone else is going to remain seated, but I want you just to stand where you are as your testimony to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. And Lord Jesus, that's what we ask for. We ask for mercy. Mercy. In fact, if that's what you want, congregation, would you just say that word with me? Mercy. Say it again. Mercy. That's what we long for, Lord. Mercy for hard-hearted, mercy for heavy-hearted, and you alone know who they are. Oh God, let them not waste the conviction, the hope that comes by your Spirit moving. Let us not take that for granted or make it so familiar. Oh God, guard us, we pray. Oh, guard us from having you become too familiar. And we ask this in your sovereign and supreme name, in Jesus' name. Amen.